0: If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.
1: Hi. Welcome back to Estate Sale. This is Brad again, back solo. This time talking philosophy, logic, critical race theory, a whole bunch of stuff with Dr. Scott Coley. Scott has a master's in theology from Notre Dame, a PhD in philosophy from Purdue University, and teaches ethics, political philosophy, and epistemology at Mount St. Mary's University. Ours was a wide-ranging conversation on concepts of justice, politics, objective truth, and critical race theory in the context of the conservative church. Along the way we get some introduction to concepts in philosophy and logic. We recorded this in late December and I have to say I've been mulling over Scott's analysis ever since. After the estate sale song ending, be sure to listen to me try to test my logic knowledge with Scott. He was pretty generous and he might have given me a passing grade. So, as I told you in the email, one of the things that that Lori and I look at and I think I told you Laurie, uh, PhD in journalism, she was at that 95 uh, SBC convention where they apologize for slavery, um, and segregation. And she said, it was funny because, um, we were talking about in the context of Robert's book. And I said, you know, he pointed out that, that in that, uh, after that apology, they made a big deal of pulling up a black pastor who then accepted the apology, you know, and then a whole bunch of other black pastors are like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's, that's not how any of this works. Um, But Lori also, she just chimed in. She said, I have to tell you, I was there at the meeting. It almost didn't pass. It was incredibly contested to even get that. Just an apology, uh, you know, through there. So so we've been we've been kind of focused on the, the failure of these institutions. And since she and I both she she and I actually went to the same church here in Port Collins. Southern Baptist Church. So we have kind of this same kind of lineage or similar lineage. And then she went on to work in it. So we've been kind of really looking at the failure of these different institutions. And one of them, I think, obviously, is the conservative evangelical church. It feels to me that there's been, and maybe this is in the uh, IT is more uh, feature than bug. I'm not sure. But regardless, we've, as we're looking at kind of woes in society whether it's trumpism or whether it's it's other kinds of things we've been trying to understand and she's you know looked at journalism and and the failures of journalism in terms of of really truly asking good questions so uh, we keep coming back to the church uh we interviewed ron Sider earlier in the in the podcast to talk about evangelicals that was very interesting Just to give you a little bit of a background, when I started sort of questioning this uh, was when the SBC made the emphasis on on female submission. That was a problem for me, but it wasn't it wasn't it was just sort of like, all right, you guys do what you're going to do. I'm I'm not upset about it. That's just that's going to be how individual families decide how they're going to manage that. Then I watched them, you know, sort of really embrace George Bush and then really embrace torture. And I was like, whoa. Something is clearly flawed. And then, of course, after that, their response to Obama, you know, I feel like I got more racist pass on emails from from evangelical friends than I did from, you know, just conservatives in general. And then, of course, we get to Trump and it just seems like a real cluster. So uh, before we get into CRT, I'm curious what you think of that in terms of that uh, observation of of these institutions or this. and it's difficult to kind of pin down it's it's conservative white evangelical i guess it's sort of it's what i'm focused on uh but let me just stop talking and see what you think about that
0: so so the so uh what do i think about um what do you
1: think about maybe let me let me say what, what do you think about the role of the evangelical church in america over the last 30 years do you see it as 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 an institution uh being a positive good being a, a, I mean, what, what do you see there? I guess is is for lack of a better way to frame it.
0: So, um, I'm getting, uh, the the answer to that question would be, uh, an empirical description. Uh, and, and, and I would defer to sociologists and historians of religion on that specific question. Um, but a related question that I like to think about, is is closer to my expertise uh, would be the normative question of how Christians should uh, interact with our public institutions, what our role should be. And then uh, we can make some sort of, uh, I think basic observations about how we have failed to do that. And I do read sociology and history of religion, you know, and I can, sure. I can glean some basic data from that. In order to to address that normative question, um, I think I'd like to take a step back, if I could, and just say something about uh, justice and some different conceptions of justice. So government exists, obviously, to enforce the law. And politics is about um, determining uh, how, how government will do that, what our laws will be, and how laws will be enforced and by whom, et cetera. That's what politics is about, right? Um, and there are a couple of very different ideas about what we're doing when we engage in political debates about how our government's going to operate and what our laws are going to be. And these two different views revolve around two different conceptions of what justice is. Yeah. So one view conceives of justice as, um, whatever the law says, right. And we could call this political realism. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So notably on this view, there's no objective truth about justice, right? Uh, justice is what the people empower or in, in, in our society, right? The sovereign is the law, at least in theory. Right. And so um, the political realist would say that justice is whatever the sovereign says. And so in our context, the political realist would say justice is whatever the law says. Yeah.
1: So if you have to return a fugitive slave, that's, that's justice because that's the law and the yeah, whatever the law like that. Is, right. that, yeah. that
0: is that is that determines what what because justice is about what people deserve right and what we owe to each other, right And if if you embrace uh, political realism, you don't think there's any objective truth about what people deserve or how we should treat each other. right? So what is there other than the law? there's nothing. There's, there's no objective truth about what people deserve. The law says what people deserve according to the law. Um, and that's the closest approximation we have to, I mean, that is justice. There's no, there's nowhere else to turn for justice. Right. That's it. That's all there is. So, um, what it means for uh, Congress, for example, to pass a law that is just is simply for Congress to pass a law. That's it. Right. Um, and so when you engage in political debates, success for you is defined in terms of a definition of justice. That suits your purposes, your interests, right? So, so the goal of politics is to have laws and governance that suits your purposes, that that conforms to your interests. What other goal could there be, right? Uh, or at least your perceived interests, of course, right? I mean, because that, it, it, right? If you go back to Plato, I mean, this goes all the way back to be, you know, the beginning of Western philosophy, right? Right. Uh, And and Socrates famously, uh, in arguing with Thrasymachus in book one of the Republic, says, you know, he gets him twisted up over his real interest versus his perceived interest and so on. In in any case, um, there's a long lineage of this kind of view of what justice is, right? It's whatever the sovereign says. Yeah. So um, I reject that view. Um, I believe that there is objective moral truth. Um, I believe there is objective truth about what people deserve and what we owe to each other. and, And that's what we call justice. And so what we, what we ought to be doing when we engage in politics is, uh, to, uh, conform our laws and our system of governance to the objective truth about justice, hmm. to that objective standard. That should be the goal. Um, for a variety of reasons, uh, philosophical, cultural, the prevailing view in our society of what we're doing when we engage in politics. Is this sort of special interest approach, right? Where I, I should, I should vote for the uh, candidate or the platform that's going to serve my interests. It's just assumed that that's what people do. And so, and, and so trying to discern who you should vote for is really a matter of trying to discern, uh, who's telling you the truth about what's in your interest and what they're going to do when they get in office. Um, I totally reject that conception of, of what politics is about. Um, I think the goal when you go into the voting booth should be not to vote for the candidate who's going to serve your interests, uh, but to to um, as best you can, vote for the the candidate in the platform that is going to bring our public institutions uh, into conformity with the truth about justice. now, there are there, there are some cases where uh, there's overlap between those two objectives, for example, during the civil rights movement if if you're, uh, in the group of people whose civil rights are being violated, right. Um, and you want that to change, then it just so happens that in that case, um, pursuing justice is, uh, in in your, obviously in your own interest. Right. Uh, right. Um, but the point is that the motivation is pursuing justice. The fact that it happens to be in your interest is incidental, should be on my view. Um, I think the church should take this approach. Uh, that there's objective truth about justice, and that this is what the church should be promoting in its in its uh, public. Uh, I, I don't know what to call these people these self-appointed spokesmen mm. uh, for evangelicalism. I I, I I dare not call them leaders. They're not leaders. Right. Le- leaders. Leaders uh, persuade people to do hard things. Mm. Uh, these men uh, entice God's people uh, to do the easiest possible thing. Um, so they're not leaders, uh, but they're, they're, they're spoke, we'll call them spokesmen and they're men. They, they, they embrace notion, uh, you know, notions about politicians doing things for Christians. Mm. What on earth does that mean? I, I, I have no idea what that, what that is supposed to mean
1: mm.
0: or, or why it should appeal to me as a Christian. I, I reject that
1: understanding of what we ought to be
0: doing when we approach politics.
1: Um, by the way, you have, I circled when you said objective truth and justice, I'm thinking about the, again, the church setting that I grew up in. Um, sure. My late father used to tell me that as I, as I moved and became more liberal, he said that, you know, as a liberal, I lacked uh, a belief in abject in, in objective truth. And I had become, you know, situational ethics where, you know, um, I, I'm looking back at that church I grew up in. I mean, it's cross town. I go past it with PTSD. Um, and I, you know, I think I was taught there that there is something called objective truth. And I'm curious if you think, I mean, when you in your interchange with people on, on, on Twitter or just in person, people who are in that church, but I'm not talking about the Franklin Graham's or the Jeffresses or whoever, um, they believe that they believe in an objective truth, don't they? Absolutely. i mean they they think they do
0: absolutely they do yeah they 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 think that they uh, are actually defending this you know last vestige of a an objective viewpoint right uh, and that they're sort of the, you know that's the last hope. Perhaps I could take uh, again, take a sort of step back and come at that directly. The, I think that one issue with uh, evangelicalism that's been sort of percolating for some time is that evangelicals are are have fully embraced modernism mm. and as a part of that, yes, they think that they believe in objective moral truth, but their whole uh, belief system is built in such a way that they can't. Mm. And, uh, so they, they hold this belief system that's completely at odds with the notion of objective moral truth. And then they, they sort of try to patch that up with, well, they don't, they don't see a problem with it. Right. But, but then they, they sort of put on top of that belief system, uh, that's at odds with objective moral truth, the stipulation that they believe in objective moral truth, which Mm. I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's, um, whatever they happen to believe, they just call it objective moral truth. I have been in conversation with Susan, Susan Codone, uh, about issues, uh, institutional issues in the SBC. And she drew my attention to this phrase, uh, prevailing orthodoxy mm. that appears in Southern Seminary's uh, account of its own history, uh, with respect to racism and slavery and so on. Um, and that document refers to, uh, what it calls, I think, by way of mitigating the the wrongness of it, uh, that's the sense I got at least that you know uh, certain figures in the history of the SBC were subject to a prevailing orthodoxy that embraced the institution of slavery. We still have prevailing orthodoxies in right. evangelicalism, and that I'm afraid is often a stand-in uh, for what they take to be objective moral, uh, uh, moral truth, and it's, it's just not. So the belief system itself is this kids are taught in school now and have been for some time that all declarative statements can be divided into facts and opinions. And actually there's a, there's a philosopher at, uh, the college there in Fort Collins named McBrayer, uh, his first name escapes me, um, are acquaintances from, you know, conferences and so on, but right. he published an op-ed in the New York times about this sometime back. Um, it, but in any case, this is part of the curriculum, right? Kids are taught that all declarative statements uh, can be divided into facts and opinions. Facts are objectively true and empirically verifiable. Opinions are subjective and cannot be verified. Opinions are everything else that isn't fact, right? Well, where does morality fit into that scheme? It's It's opinion. It's opinion. Because moral claims are not empirically verifiable and when you divide when you divide the world in such a way that that all moral claims go into this sort of opinion bucket um, then there's it's impossible to have any intelligible debate about questions concerning uh, what is good and what we ought to do and what's valuable hmm. um and so that is a, in my view a big part of the reason why our politics is such a mess um there's no way to have intelligible public debate about what our society ought to be doing or intelligible public debate about what is the objective truth about justice? That it doesn't even make sense. So it's, all, it's all opinion th- and preference and, and what's in my interest.
1: When you said about prevailing theology, I mean, that, that of course is, is quintessentially situational ethics, right? I oh mean, yeah. The prevailing orthodoxy, that notion. Right. Yeah. Prevailing orthodoxy. Yes. So one of the thoughts I've had, and as, as I, I mean, as I started digging into history and talking to my evangelical friends as I was kind of you know, going through grad school and everything else, I have been struck by the fact that that at least and again, understanding that my sample is incredibly low. I mean, it's just the people I'm talking anecdotal here, but their ability to sort of see their the history of their own movement. Appears to be, and I don't know if this has to do with the sola scriptura kind of aspect of it, that there's no real need for understanding even theological mistakes or denominational mistakes because it's all just about where I am right now and what God is saying to me through the word, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm struck by, it cause it, it feels like that if we were to point out to somebody, okay, prevailing orthodoxy means that in this setting, you could actually, if you were in Germany in the 1930s, you could be as a part of prevailing orthodoxy supportive of the Hitler regime um, and be within the orthodoxy, right? By definition, and then, you know, and, and you would say that to somebody today and they would say, well, I wouldn't, you know, that's not, they were wrong. They were, they were deluded. They were, they were misled. They were, you know, led by false teachers, whatever. Um, but since there doesn't seem to be any of this kind of introspective, at least in my observation of sort of going back and saying, okay, we were pretty convinced, you know, I mean, when I was growing up, there was an absolute honest argument in the Sunday school and church I was in about interracial marriage. And not in a positive way. And I was like, "Um, there was certainly an argument that women were not allowed to lead in certain ways and everything else. And so, you know, and when you don't have any kind of historical record to go back I've always thought, by the way, that the Jewish tradition of, as I understand it, and you can probably clarify this for me, that the Talmud to me is historiography. It is essentially the collection of rabbinical writings on different things. And in that is built in the idea that these rabbis are interpreting the Torah through their own context. And so they have built into that study of the Talmud is a history of mistakes they've made and, and ways that they've capitulated to culture in a way that they shouldn't or whatever at least my version of Christianity didn't have anything like that. Does that does that make sense?
0: Well, I'll just say as a general matter, I think uh, evangelicals in particular do not take uh, nearly the lessons we should from mm-hmm. the right. Jewish tradition. And, and that begins with recognizing that um, the Hebrew scriptures were an inheritance. And it's not. It, it's not... It's not up to us to just to just like say what it means. You don't. You can't. (laughs) What is that? Mm. I I don't. Yeah. At least I'm speechless when it comes to that. Like, like it's like some some evangelicals, you know, in the 20th century, just the, the 19th or 20th century, just decided that the first few chapters of Genesis were like newspaper clippings from antiquity. What? And they decided that, 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 that is the Orthodox view. Right. Right. What? I, and, and as you say, as you say, there's no reflection on, on the fact that like for a very, very, very long time, first among Jewish interpreters whose text this was, and then among christian theologians for a very long time um this was not the standard interpretation and then and then some folks just came along and decided that this was going to be the standard interpretation if you disagreed then you're
1: you know uh
0: your faith is deficient or something
1: you're outside the pale what's that you're outside the pale yeah yeah bizarre yeah do you think? By the way, just out of curiosity, this is a little bit of a of a tangent, but it strikes me that the uh, eschatology, um, as I understand it, has kind of because one of the things I've observed again uh, in my observations, it was sort of like, wow, this ancient text from a completely different culture appears to be written specifically for that uh, Christian soccer mom who who prays to God for a parking spot. Yeah. Um, and so there's this very, very uh, I, I, self-centered, I guess, is is the, the way it's is as if it was all written for me in this time. And I wonder if that that belief in, you know, the rapture in the end times, is that is that part of that? That that's it's sort of at least in that. Obviously, not all of Christianity embraces that. So that's. Uh, as a caveat, but.
0: Yeah. yeah. So so um, I I am. Uh, and. Orthodox Christian who has no reservations about uh, saying the creeds fully in good faith. Uh, I, I, affirm and believe, uh, right. uh, what, what the propositions expressed by, uh, the creeds. So, um, I believe that, uh, Christ is going to return to, uh, gather the church, uh, you know, and so on the, the, those, 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 Points of belief. Having said that, um, there are certain conversations in contemporary evangelicalism, going back to say the eighties, the seventies or eighties, um, that I find, uh, frankly, ludicrous, <laughs> and I spend no time thinking about them. Mm. Uh, and that and and the business about pre-tribulation or post-tribulation. i i I have i i know that i've i've i mean to to put it in um just sort earthy terms like i have my marching orders and and they don't include sitting around and speculating about Mm. things like that right like what i know is that i'm supposed to be whenever that happens there are certain things i'm supposed to be up to and and uh Arguing about when it's going to happen is not one of those things. <laughs> no. Yeah. And, and for people who claim to, to read the whole Bible literally, they spend an awful lot of time talking about symbolism in the book yeah. of
1: Revelation. Yeah. Um, well, let me let me jump into the two things that you have been writing about and sort of that we've been arguing about on Twitter um, actually one of them I don't know that you've addressed specifically, but it feels like that, especially with your conversation about justice. I am very curious about um I I was puzzled by the way, and and on, on social media is where somebody referred to me or somebody else as a social justice warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I was like, I mean, that's probably the same place that I learned what critical race theory was, or learned about it. So can you I because this is actually I I have a little better understanding about critical race theory as to as to maybe why people are so adamant against this. Uh, This kind of rage against social justice warriors, for lack of a better word, is that really just getting at what you're talking about, about definitions, about how they define what justice is? And so their objection is really that the people who are woke or are concerned with, you know, race or, or whatever, um, are, are defining justice in a way that they find uncomfortable. They don't agree with, they don't, you know, is that, is that, is that why they're so angry about, th- I mean, I'm, I'm, not asking you to, to, uh, explain their emotions or their motives, but. Sure. Here's
0: my sense of the situation. Um, I, it, which may or may not be an accurate description of, of, uh, the, the motives of any particular, okay actor by means of, of certain concepts like inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture, right? Which both of those terms have a like a, a benign theological meaning. Um, and then both, and both of those terms have a, uh, a malignant, uh, political sort of, uh, Meaning that implies a kind of power differential, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the in the benign theological sense, I, I can honestly say that I embrace inerrancy, and I and I embrace um, the uh, well, the the classic doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture, which has nothing to do with how that term is used mm-hmm. by gotcha. some of these fundamentalists uh, to basically mean, uh, you know, to exclude any kind of Intellectual endeavor that that may have some suppo- suppositions that are at variance with their. Own. I mean, I don't. I don't know. It's difficult to define because they 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 in this malignant sense they use the term just however it suits them in that situation, right? So in any case, these folks who employ uh, inerrancy, which is in the malignant sense, is code for basically if you disagree with my interpretation then you think that god isn't the author of scripture i mean that's clearly how they yes. use the term in any case uh uh these guys who use these terms in these malignant ways uh and and they and and i mean let let's be candid about this uh part of part of what's going on here under you know under the surface if you're not familiar with uh the culture or the way things operate at seminaries and so on uh this won't be obvious to you but part of what's going on is a threat to the employment of seminary faculty who do not fall in line folks who have children and mortgages and who like their job and who feel called to train pastors for ministry and uh the academic job market is difficult as it is uh but particularly in the current climate i mean no no one's no one's going to I'll put it this way. It'd be understandable if you just sort of folks just sort of fall in line with certain things. Yeah. Uh, because you question of, you know, the wrong person's interpretation of this or that passage and you find yourself out of work a- and being, being, uh, slandered as, as someone who doesn't believe that scripture is, is, uh, the word of God. Right. So that, that's what's going on here um in any case the the folks who who manipulate things in, in these ways are accustomed to being able to use those those weapons in in the context of any debate about normative questions what we ought to be doing or how we ought to view things well the thing about justice talk is that um everybody has a sense of justice right and uh of course, I, I believe that uh, all of scripture is, is true. And so the truth about justice must be consistent with what scripture says about justice. Um, but of course, it doesn't follow that uh, scripture is the only way that I can uh, come to know things about justice. I mean, Paul talks about the moral law being written on, on men's hearts, right? regardless of whether they, they know God. Um, we all, we might have different sensibilities about ex- the details of what people deserve, but we all have a sense of, of people deserving to be treated in a certain way. And we all have a sense of indignation when, uh, w- when that order is violated. When we start reasoning about that in ways that are, that, that may be entirely consistent with, uh, what, what scripture says about justice right? Or, or entailed by what scripture says about justice. If you think about it, the, the, one, another one of the tools that these guys use is they they employ entailments, you know, when it suits them. Um, but they're not sitting around doing logic proofs to try to figure out, you know, what scripture actually entails, you know, that, to try to, to untangle the remote consequences of the truth claims right. uh, that we find in scripture. So um, when people start, you know, consulting the law that's written on their heart, and asking questions about justice and saying things that are not at all inconsistent with scripture. Um, And and in in many cases are consistent with uh, entirely consistent with scripture, obviously. So, or might even be entailed by scripture, right? But they just arrived, we arrived at them by different means through general revelation, right? right? Um, These guys can't use their toolkit Hmm. with inerrancy and infallibility. And they actually haven't thought about this stuff very much. They're not good at it. They're not. When you listen to the things they say about politics, um, you see, you see that they don't know about public policy. They don't know about the Mm. details of political theory. They don't. And so what they do is and and they use this language. I mean, I I find it blasphemous. They say, well, you know, there's all this justice talk over here, but really what matters is biblical justice. Mm. And they just slap the word biblical on there because then they're back in their territory where they can use their tools of inerrancy and sufficiency which mean whatever they want them to mean on, on on a given day depending on who they're arguing with and what they're arguing about um that's why they they are authoritarians and they are spiritual abusers um and when you start talking about justice um in this in this domain that's outside of their uh, w- where they can ply their their toolkit uh, they get scared and they should they sh- they should be scared because they're out of their depth um, and so they're very anxious to bring the conversation back into the confines uh, of, of scripture where they are very well-practiced at manipulation.
1: Yeah. So, so is that, does that also explain, uh, the response to critical race theory? I mean, at least at yeah. one level.
0: Uh, yes. So it's absolutely related. Um, I think there's a, an additional, well, there, there are additional layers with critical race theory. One of which is this. Um, some critical race theorists say some provocative things, mm. which, uh, if, if my rhetorical goal, and of course it needs to be said, I'm, I'm a, a white male, right? But if, as a white male, if I'm trying to persuade, uh, folks in the majority culture in, say, the deep South, of certain truths about how racism operates in our society, how it has historically, uh, the legacies of it that we're living with structurally and so on. If I'm going to try to explain those truths um, uh, and my goal is to get them to understand and that's it, right? Uh, there are some things I probably frame differently in, in less provocative terms. Sure. Right. Um, of course, it's none of my business how critical race theorists do their work, um, and it's not their job to make me feel comfortable with what they're saying. So they can say things in provocative terms as provocative terms as they want. That's that's their business. It's not to right. me to pass judgment on that.
1: Uh, plus, plus, they're not theologians. I mean, yeah, that's, no, right? they're, they're, it's totally different
0: goal, right. right? So, in any case, they say some provocative things, and uh, and I should say I don't have deep expertise in in critical race theory, but. The, People who work in the field divide, divide, uh, sort of the subject matter into two different camps. One of which has to do with what we might call, uh, features of psychology, group or individual. The, the other domain sort of having to do with, uh, structures, right? Uh, institutions. Right. Um, my own research, which I'm, I'm not a critical race theorist. That's not the tradition right. that I operate in but my own research into into um, uh, institutional moral analysis has some overlap with that that side of things gotcha. critical uh, race theory so um with that said um some of what goes on in critical race theory uh strikes me as so i'm commenting as a non expert here uh but whose research overlaps a bit with some of what goes on uh, uh some claims made by critical race theory strike me as as obviously true um, other claims made by critical race theorists, uh, you know, I mean, I'm an analytic philosopher, so occasionally I might have difficulty with how some terminology is deployed, or I might think there's a lack of clarity around certain things, uh, or some equivocation, uh, but again, not my field, okay? Um, but, but here's what I think is happening rhetorically uh, in, in uh, conversations in the, among Southern Baptists about this. Um, I think they've found some provocative statements that critical race theorists make, again, not theologians, not their principal goal to make uh, white evangelicals comfortable. Uh, So they take these provocative statements and they say, uh, well, look, all this talk about institutional justice boils down to critical race theory. And here's what critical race theorists think about white people. Mm. Isn't that offensive? And oh, by the way, they're Marxists. Yeah. Um, and I think the whole conversation around, uh, critical race theory in the SBC at this point has become a a diversion Mm. from substantive conversations Mm. about institutional justice that frankly we could have if we just talked a little bit about civics and U.S. history and justice. But what they've attempted to do clearly is to paint all questions of systemic injustice uh or what we might call structural sin, as the sort of
1: brainchild
0: of critical race theorists and this is
1: right i was thinking when you said uh i'm not an expert in critical race theory and i thought well i don't think any of those six seminary presidents are either but that didn't stop them from signing a uh you know a denunciation of it without defining what it was (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was some there, there, I'm given to understand that there was some internal uh, politics going on. As soon as I read the document, I knew who wanted it written, which of them wanted it written and which of them maybe took some persuading to sign off on. it. Mm. Yeah. No, no, but but no, you, you, you're absolutely correct. They're not right. they're not uh, experts on it. And and um, there was a statement by the president of Southwestern recently to the community at Southwestern seminary um and uh it so so there's been a concession now that uh it's it uh systemic injustice is real Hmm. despite the objections to critical race theory systemic injustice is real um but that's about as far as it goes and the this letter to southwestern uh referred its audience to this article that was written by the president of southern seminary over the summer uh, if you, if you Google like Al Mohler's systemic injustice, uh, you know, you'll, you'll find it. And, and so that, that was cited as sort of, um, this official position that like, Hey, systemic injustice is real. I, I had actually already read that article. Um, but I, I went back and read it again to refresh my, my memory. Uh, and it's analysis is disappointing. Mm. It's basically like, yeah, there's systemic injustice, but the real issue is individuals, right, like what are you gonna do
1: you know, I think Robert Jones refers to that as the white evangelical shuffle, you know <laughs> on you you give you give you know, yeah, there's racism, but then uh he he was pointing to the 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 commission i mean that moeller commissioned that history of Southern seminary mm-hmm. and in there denounces the kind of racism and slavery as actually outside the pale of orthodoxy, but then goes on to celebrate those men as good Christian men, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, and you know, it's for, so for Robert Jones, it's, you know, you go two steps forward maybe, but then you're going to take, take a step back. You're going to figure out a way to, you know.
0: Yeah. So, so I don't know what the allergy is, Uh, I I can, I can, I can guess about some things that, that contribute to it. Uh, but I think it would take a, perhaps a psychologist to figure out exactly Mm. what's going on. Um, but, but there is a real allergy, a real resistance to institutional moral analysis. But part of what's going on there is that institutional moral analysis is, uh, more complicated than assessing individual conduct. So that's that's one obstacle to, to thinking about it, and and it and it does take some work um, to, to to even to, to even really come to conceptualize uh, institutions as morally salient. Right. Yeah. I mean, conservative evangelicals are really resistant to institutional reform or any suggestion that part of the problem might just be like that the rules are bad rules. Mm, yeah you know uh but they don't have any problem they don't have any problem uh feeling a sense of indignation when they don't like the rules
1: right right
0: Right? um so i I, again i don't i'm not a psychologist i don't is it is it just kind of like a self-serving tendency to revert to individual piety uh anytime uh something comes up that might require a sacrifice on your part you, for, for you to give up some of your freedoms because they're in fact forms of license that are inconsistent with the requirements of justice, right? Slaveholders in the South, right? Um, th- their whole argument was uh, free the slave. What about me? What about my rights? What, right. what about what, what about what the, um, the the standard of living that, that I've, yeah. that I've come to expect? What, what about, what about me? don't don't think about the slaves think about me and the deprivations that I must endure if we were to end the institution of slavery right right um, And of course I mean you can do that with anything you can always cloak license in the language of legitimate liberty mm. right but but yeah. at, at least supposedly our nation promises liberty and justice for all right right That sounds great, but how's that supposed to work? Yeah yeah. You, you can't, you can't, uh, it, it can't mean that everyone gets to do whatever they want. That's not that, because if, right. if, if everyone does whatever they want all the time, you will, you will do, and you will suffer all manner of injustice. If you are right. to have liberty and justice, justice must be sovereign. Liberty must submit to you. There's no such thing as too much justice, hmm. right? There is absolutely such a thing as too much freedom.
1: Yeah. Interesting. That, that will get you in trouble I think in a lot of circles but um, I'm I'm struck by uh, when you were talking about the the individual versus the systemic or institutional because I actually posited one time I was like you know why why wouldn't you gravitate towards institutional bias or institutional racism as a way to explain the issues of the day whether it be police brutality or inequality or judicial, um inequality in terms of sentences stuff like that because it would ex- there, there, at least there would be one way of doing that that would excuse it would say it's not my fault it's not my bias it's not the fact that you know it's it's just the system that's right that's right but um,
0: it, oh sorry I, I didn't mean to cut you off
1: no 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 i was, and and i sort of I, I was framing that in in the context and i and it dawned on me as you're talking about this when you talked about this kind of reverting to personal piety I'm struck by, at least in my conversations, again, anecdotal with some of my conservative evangelical friends. Um, the only way they can define racism is that it is, well, first of all, it's something that is the uh, racists are bad people. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not a bad person. So that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that racism is defined by a conscious hostility towards other people. And since I don't have that, I don't even see color. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know, then I, I can't be racist and and I'm certainly not racist because I'm not a bad person. And so it seems to be that there's this, it's an easy, it's an easy, uh, gravity and you can gravitate to that as an explanation. It's all about individual bias because that's what something other people do. And it doesn't cause me to ask questions about my white suburb. I mean, I live in Fort Collins, by the way, which is incredibly white. So I'm, I'm certainly not casting stones, but, um, It seems to me that that that's at least one of the ways that that people don't uh, can object to institutional issues, I guess, Mm -hmm. because that that would ask them to ask questions of of their own kind of success in a way that they're uncomfortable with.
0: That's right. That's right. So so um, this is this is a point where um, uh, and I want to say something about bias as well in this context to to do with uh, sort of uh, uh, moral blameworthiness. But, but this, this, this is one point at which I find it particularly difficult to imagine that mm. some of the folks I- involved in these conversations are arguing in good faith. Mm. Uh, because they, they, they make, uh, people who should know better make exactly the kind of move that you just sort of caricatured. Right. Uh, but it's not much of a caricature. Yeah. Um, uh, and they say, uh, what do you like? Well, let me back up. So. So, um, the, the, the point about institutionalized racism, right, is that, uh, as you say, um, it sort of gets individuals, uh, uh, off the hook in, in relevant ways. Yeah. Because it's, because look, you can have, uh, institutional racism without any racist involved. Correct. Because yeah, the whole point is the problem isn't the individuals involved. It's the, it's the institutions. It's the standing practices, the conventions, right. the rules, right? Um, now. Here's, here's where, you know, I, I suppose the reason why uh, the, the line gets blurred is that you've got people who refuse to acknowledge the, the institutional features of racism, which you might think implies a certain kind of racist attitude in a couple of different respects. Well, one is that, uh, well, they don't want to change it. Right. And at that point, they're complicit in it. Um, and the other is that, I mean, when you look at the data and you look at the disparities in wealth and income and education. And so like all the disparities that exist. I mean, you could say it's like ignorance of statistics, but I I don't like the data or how statistics work, but it's difficult to imagine that someone could actually understand all of the data and its implications and deny that there's such a thing as institutional racism, like without having some racist attitudes. Because how else do you explain the disparities?
1: Right. It's, it's either it's either that black people are lazy or not as smart or more criminal. Right. Or there are there institutional issues. I mean, is that is that I mean, it, it, it does sort of boil down to uh, that's overly simplistic. But well, so that,
0: well, so the logit- the logician in me is coming out now. Right. So, I mean, it could be there could be or there could be some unknown variable. Right. right. But but the but the point is, um, it's not that the system is in any way stacked against people of color. There's, there's gotta be something about them yep. that that that's why these disparities exist. Um, I don't know what to call that other than, you know, some form of racism. Yeah. Right? And so I think that that's perhaps where the lines get blurred, but I don't think that that's where the confusion is arising in these, in these conversations among evangelicals, um, because the conversation is getting that far, mm. right. There's a, a, a kind of a refusal to take a step back and say, okay, look, no one's calling me racist. Right. They're saying that the, that the setup is, you know, has some features that lead to disparate outcomes and that that's not OK. Yeah, that, I find I find that re, sort of refusal to, to reflect in that way. I find it, um, as I say, difficult to imagine that some folks are arguing in good faith. Folks who can make some really fine grained distinctions when it comes to theology, all right. of a sudden lose their lose their sense of uh, nuance and subtlety uh, when it comes to these conversations, right. Um, to the point about bias, there, there's a similar dynamic there, right? So, so our brains, uh, function in such a way that we, everyone naturally, like anyone with a, a human brain who, who's cognitively normal, their brain functions in a way that, uh, is constantly trying to economize on information costs, It's part of the reason why we're so bad at inductive reasoning. When we try to do inductive reasoning like carefully to draw really subtle inferences, everyone is naturally very bad at it. Hmm. Even the people who are best at it are naturally very bad at it. You have to really, really like beat your brain into submission to get it to to make inductive inferences well. It's really hard to do. And then you take someone who's really good at it and put them in a different environment and ask them, sort of questions and they'll be just as bad at as any, as anyone else. Interesting. Right. Um, all that to say, look, if you, uh, if you sat and calculated all the possibilities in every situation you, uh, about, you know, why this might be different than that. And, you know, trying to reach uh, individual judgments, just based on the information in front of you, you would never, you would literally like never do anything Hmm. because your brain can't, you can't process all the information. So all that to say, Um, part of having a, a, a healthy, well-functioning human brain is to make, uh, what we would regard in, in rhetorical circumstances is to make hasty generalizations, Mm. right. And, and, uh, you know, research in this uh, area is, is still, uh, I mean, neuroscience in general is is still, you know, in its infancy, but, but research in this area is still a pretty new thing, but, but everyone has biases. That doesn't, it doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a normal person to right. have biases. Right. Right. And so again, uh, people, and it, it, it's hard to imagine some of these folks are arguing good faith. It's like, well, what do you mean? I have, I have biases. Uh, you're saying I'm racist. That's like, no, no, no. You you have biases and, and some of these biases lead to racist results. Right. Um, at least as far as I'm concerned, that doesn't make you morally blameworthy unless you just refuse to do anything about it. Um, and there's this fellow uh, who is—I uh, um, don't know if he self-identifies as an atheist or an agnostic. He's a non-theist um, and has said some things that are pretty antagonistic about religion. Who is a um, uh, a critic of critical race theory in general? Um, in fact, the president of Southern Seminary had him on his uh, sort of you know, daily podcast uh, to talk about. The purported uh, dangers of critical race theory, and and this guy is like their, the the go to guy uh, for critiques of critical race theory, which is which is frankly bizarre, given that the main critique of critical race theory is that it's sort of you know non Christian, right? Well, their whole expert on the on this relationship between right, I mean, is a non theist, right? So right. so there's that there's that really exquisite irony there. Right. Cause I'm, I'm out something? here talking about, I'm out here talking about justice. Right. And then folks are going to say like, oh, well, you're just a critical race theorist. I'm not. Um, and critical race theory is bad. They don't have any reason for thinking that they don't know anything about it. Right. Um, right. But it's, it's just, it's a way of putting a bow on it and, and not having to, to think about, um, not having to interrogate the, the established order of things.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, and it it it, uh, it it bears some connection to this notion of a prevailing orthodoxy, mm. and they're quite comfortable with their prevailing orthodoxy, and in in thinking that there is correspondence between that orthodoxy and the objective truth about mm. uh, morality. Um, but what they have done is they've taken their set of rules, which may be vaguely related to the moral truth described in scripture. They've taken their system of rules and they have massaged it over the years. We're talking over decades and centuries, massaged it uh, so that uh, it conforms to their interests, mm. right? Um, and, and what they're working with is a simulacrum of God's moral law. It is a, it's a copy that bears no resemblance to the original. And they've persuaded themselves that um what they're doing is fine because they've got their rules hmm. that after all came from god in other words they're doing precisely the kind of thing that the pharisees were doing when when jesus said uh no i didn't come to tear down the law i'm telling you what the law means yeah because you've lost sight of what the rules are about the sabbath right. is not for you quote quoting uh jeremiah isaiah etc like these folks are going into church worshiping god and they've got their laborers out in the field working on the Sabbath. Right. The Sabbath is not for them. It's for their workers. And, and and what all this comes down to, man, honestly, the, and the, the, the talk of like biblical justice versus like justice, they're just, they're just justice, right? Right. And what this comes down to is turning the temple into a den of thieves. They are hiding behind these theological concepts right? Uh, that, that they claim are, are taken from scripture. Right. Uh, and they're in fact, antithetic to scripture and they're, 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 they're hiding out in the temple and counting their money to be clear. I'm not accusing them of, 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 you know, committing fraud, with like taking money and anything like that. What, what what I'm saying is that there are these institutional mechanisms in place yes. that have resulted in, uh, an unjust distribution of resources in our society. Yes. And, uh, as a way of maintaining that order and not redressing, even contemplating restitution. Right. They're hiding behind the Bible.
1: So here Mueller does this thing and says, OK, we have this history of racism and this this church or this seminary across town that's historically black said, you know, uh, you've got this huge endowment. We could use some help if, if you want to really address this. And Mueller's response immediately was, um, I don't think reparations are a good solution to this. Um, that's part of that switch you're talking about, where he's making an argument that's not based in anything from the Bible,
0: as far as I can tell, his the animating feature of his approach to thinking and remarking on politics is uh, this notion of limited government, mm. or we might call it sort of fiscal libertarianism. The thing about fiscal libertarianism is that uh, on that view of things, uh, the whole reason why we assent to being governed is uh, so that we will have. Uh, system of law and law enforcement in place to protect property rights. Yeah. So the whole purpose of government is to, uh, is to protect uh, property resources, right. Uh, to make sure that people have what they're supposed to have and they don't have things that other people are supposed to have. I don't know where the breakdown is, right. But, but if you think that the, the, the principal function of government is to make sure that resources are, uh, in the keeping of those who should have them, then you should be in the front of the line advocating for reparations. Even even Robert Nozick, right? The the, uh, um, libertarian colossus says, now he only devotes a paragraph of, uh, if that, of Anarchy, State, and Utopia to this concession. Uh, But he says, look, I mean, people should have stuff they work for or that was given to them by others, right? And Robert Nozick regards uh, uh, progressive redistributive taxation as that, right? This guy's hardcore, okay? Uh, even he says just broadly, not with respect to anything in, in particular, but he says broadly um, uh, past violations of his principles of justice and holdings, which say you, the only stuff you should have is stuff you work for or stuff that was freely given to you. Right. As a gift or inheritance, whatever. Right. Um, past violations of those principles should warrant restitution. If you think government and uh, you think all of this is all about making sure people have what they deserve to have. On, on, on what grounds? Because it, it's like, you know, you got your, your, uh, redistribution from the federal housing administration mm-hmm. over decades. And now all of a sudden you want limited government? Yep. Huh, okay. Now that you got your money, that's a different argument, but, but yeah, yeah, there are two different, there are two, if you want limited government, you, you you should want people to have the property they should have because that's the whole point of government on your view. Right. right? And then as a separate matter, uh, you don't get to benefit from this massive government redistribution of wealth from all taxpayers, including people of color, to yes, uh white people, right? You, you, uh, made you have to point. accept that, and then say, "Well, but now, nah, mm, okay, now, now, really, I just want limited government. Now that I've got, now that I'm all set up."
1: You, you made that point in your, in a recent blog thing about about you. You're talking about you just posted it on on Twitter about redistribution, and you were talking about the original uh, Housing Act. That did not allow uh, those the lending to go to black families, but the black families were paying taxes. That's exactly right, and uh, so that's re- I mean that's distributing uh, redistributing the, the wealth from black families into white families, and yeah,
0: exactly but, right. A bunch of white folks living in uh, subsidized housing, right? They're welfare w- welfare queens, and, and then they and then they passed on that inheritance to their kids, right. The overwhelming majority of money that gets the, it, uh, transfer of uh, intergenerational transfer of wealth is right. through home equity. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.
1: Uh, by the way, one of my favorite classes as an un- undergrad was, was a logic course. Mm. So I'm going to see when you said inductive logic, right. That's opposed to deductive logic, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So just to see if I can remember. So a, uh, in a, a deductive, a, a syllogism that is formed correctly or is, is mm-hmm. put together correctly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you have to accept the conclusions of that, uh, Syllogism, Man, I'm correct. Losing all
0: so, this, right? so, 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 a, a deductive argument. If the premises are true and the argument right. is—that's what i mean.
1: I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you which, for reminding
0: me. Yeah. Which technically, if it's invalid, then you know your logician would say it's not actually a deductive argument. But right. You know what I mean? Okay. Right. So if the argument is, is deductively valid, and the premises are true.
1: Then the conclusion is ineluctable. Uh, it, it can't be false. Right. Whereas inductive is if the premises are true you can accept this as a possible explanation or answer to the, to the, to the syllogism.
0: That's a fine way of putting it, but even just trying to, to, to define the relationship between premises and a conclusion an inductive argument is, ah. it gets very complicated. Um, okay. It depends on like the strength, the significance and the weight of the evidence. Uh, but I, I, I put it this way. Um, a, a good deductive argument, uh, makes its conclusion certain, right? A good inductive argument makes its conclusion probable.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Okay.
0: So, so, uh, whatever good is in the, in the case at hand with induction, right. Uh, the, 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 the goal is to make the conclusion, uh, you know, some kind of probable or very, very probable or more likely than not. In right. Of- right.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. That, I, I, I'm 30 plus years away from that particular class so i I, I feel like I've still remembered some of that I, like I said that was actually one of the most helpful classes I ever took as, as an undergrad and I've told many many people that uh speaking of that when well, you was very good
0: by the way that was oh, it that characterization that was very good by the way Oh, thank you that, that was three decades ago <laughs> I would say even if you just took the class last semester i would be, uh, I, I'd be pleased with that.